I remember a time I was with someone who had made a series of choices that had led them to a very precarious situation. They had no idea they would be sleeping that night. They had no idea where their next meal would come from. They had no idea even if all their worldly belongings might be lost really soon. It was a horrible situation to be in. And that, that person cried out to God in my presence, cried out to God loudly, without reservation, why God? Why are you doing this to me? And my heart broke in that moment. My heart broke in that moment. And it, it breaks now thinking about it. I know this person was reflecting a frame of mind that I myself sometimes have. And caught in the natural consequences of my own sin, by which, when I say sin, what I mean is my own selfish and self-destructive attitudes and actions and affections. Caught in the natural consequences of my own sin, I try to shift the blame even to God. God, why are you doing this to me? And I do this because I am a natural descendant of Adam, the first human being. In the garden, God confronted him on his insistence of following his own way instead of the path of grace that God had laid out for him. And you know what Adam's response was? If you haven't read Genesis 3 in a while, I encourage you to go back and read it. It's really fascinating when we pay attention to the details like this one. Here is Adam's response to God. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. They weren't supposed to eat of this particular tree. So this is the first act of disobedience. Um, but do you notice, do you notice that? Uh, the woman whom, he doesn't even really blame it on Eve. The woman who you gave me. I mean, if you hadn't given me this woman, I would have been fine, God. Right? I mean, that's what he's saying. Yet God was not to blame for Adam's sin. Eve wasn't to blame for Adam's sin. Adam was to blame for Adam's sin. And maybe you, like me and Adam and Eve, find yourself choosing to believe the deceitful serpent, right? The deceitful serpent who questioned the truth of what God had said about how to actually live. And so we think to ourselves in those moments of deception, we think to ourselves, surely I, I can do what I want when I want. I'm smart. I can handle it. I'm good. I have it under control. But then the natural consequences of living in that way of following our own way instead of God's way, uh, start to manifest. And all of a sudden, we realize on some deep level, oh, I can't handle it. I'm dying here. But usually that just lasts a fraction of a second because it is a hard truth and it assaults our uh, sense of self-sufficiency and, our, and, and that desire to do what we want to do. And so we move quickly from, from that to denial and blame. And we find ourselves with that same phrase. Why, God, why are you doing this to me? The great church father, St. John Chrysostom, just um, talks about this very bluntly. 
So uh, I'll say it in his words. Remember, this is not me. This is St. John, okay? God is not the problem, he says. We are. God is not the problem. We are because of our sin and unbelief. But even in that moment at the beginning with Adam and Eve, God shows this amazing grace and mercy. The immediate result of Adam and Eve's sin was an acute sense of shame and awareness of their own vulnerability. Right? All of a sudden they realize they're naked and they're no longer living within the, the protection of, of the way of life that God had presented to them. And so they are ashamed and they are probably afraid. And God, uh, and, you know, they try to make some clothes out of, out of leaves, you know. I mean, they, I guess they didn't realize, you know, that the leaves, they're not going to last very long. You know what I mean? Um, and so their own feeble attempt is not, is not very good to deal with that. So God intervenes. God intervenes. Uh, he makes them clothes uh, so they can survive, right? It's one of the main elements we need to survive is clothing. God does that for them. But these clothes come at a cost because they're made from the skins of animals, animals that were never meant to die. And they were supposed to care for the animals, not kill them in the beginning. So these clothes come at a cost. The, the passage from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verses 21 28, we read it already. It, it picks up on these same themes actually from Genesis. This is beginning to be recapitulated. Fancy word there. Uh, said again here in another way in Exodus. God in his mercy is about to deliver his people from slavery. And part of that is he is, he is going to execute a terrible judgment upon uh, the Egyptians who had enslaved the, the people of Israel. And while the Egyptian oppressors are the target of God's wrath here, the interesting thing to me is that there is a sense that even the Israelites could be caught up in the wrath if they're not careful. They have to go inside. Like, that. don't be outside during this time. You could get caught in it. They are to mark their doors with this sign, like this blood of an innocent lamb. The, the ancient Israelites understood the life of every being to be in the blood. So uh, once again, there's this acknowledgement that, that here the mercy of God comes at a cost. Right? The, the message of killing the lamb and putting the blood on the door, the message, um, it's not like God didn't know like who and who he wasn't going to judge in that moment. Um but it was a message uh, for them. It was a way of acknowledging before God. That's why God wanted to see it. It was a way of acknowledging before God. Yes, for life to be spared, life must be given. And so this Passover ritual becomes a cornerstone of the whole system of animal sacrifices that would develop under Moses. So animals would have to die in, in this ritual, this Passover ritual, and in many other rituals over and over and over and over again. Day after day, year after year, blood poured out on these altars as a sign to the people that sin leads to death and that 
And I don't think they understood it totally then. Even we don't understand it totally now. But that mercy requires being marked with blood. And of course, the, the people knew then, just as we know now, that the death of animals could never really take away sin. They knew that. They were not in denial about that. At best, with the animal sacrifice uh, sacrificial system offered was a temporary measure of acknowledging the reality of sin. <clears throat> but it could never be a permanent solution because animal sacrifices did not and could not convey their life. Even in sacrifice, even in this way, uh, an animal cannot convey, convey its life to a human being. Right, The, the blood of animals could never be sufficient to sustain the life of a human being. And one way to think about it might be this. Human beings need a human life donor. Human beings need a human life donor in the face of the reality of sin. You know, in our psalm today, in Psalm 40, we, we see... Like this is an Old Testament book, right? We see already the people of God know this. The people of God know this. Um, burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required, verse 9. And so I said, behold, I come. Behold, I come. But the problem is, none of us can pray this prayer with complete integrity. Because we can't offer our own blood for ourselves, right? It's sinful. Um, and that goes for everybody. So we are really in a pickle. Every person is sinful. But what the church has said upon reflection on, on the Psalms is that these are ultimately the prayers of Jesus. These are ultimately the prayers of Jesus. So what Jesus is saying to God is sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but my ears have opened burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not required. And so I said, behold, I come. Now Jesus, of course, was, is a human being, but he's also God incarnate. He's God incarnate as a human being. We talked about that uh, more last week. Um, so you can go listen to that sermon for more on that. But this is why God comes to us as one of us in his son, Jesus Christ, because we need a human life donor that can actually give us life. And so John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right, this he is he is John the Baptist is this bridge moment between Old Testament and New Testament. And so he is gathering up all this whole idea from Exodus from all the way from um 
from Adam and Eve in the garden uh, through Exodus and all into the whole animal sacrificial system. He's gathering all that, all those ideas up and, and he's saying, this is the one that can fulfill that song that can say, behold, I come and take away the sin of the world. This is him. So he says, look, and, and it's amazing. And it, it's, it's, um, it's mind-blowing. Look, he says, this human being is the lamb. Not a lamb that you and I would bring, of course, but the lamb of God, the lamb from God. And what does the lamb do? Of course, we've already said it. We're going to keep saying it because we can never forget this. Unlike any and every other lamb, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ, takes away the sin of the world. And not only is this John's witness, it's not just his ideas here. Scriptures also testify that that the Lord spoke this, God spoke this to him, right? John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, who is that? God said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. That's John 1, 32 through 34. So the testimony of scriptures is not only that this is the testimony of John, which would probably be enough for me, to be honest, but that this is the testimony of God. Once again, it, it's possible for Jesus to be this lamb that takes away the sin of the world because Jesus is both God and man, perfectly divine and therefore perfectly human. And so his blood, his life is actually the only life that can truly and effectually be given for the life of sinners. And the good news is that that's exactly what he did right? Um, he gave his life in service, in teaching, in healing, in loving, in forgiving, even as he was dying unjustly on a Roman cross. He shed his blood so that he could forgive the worst possible sin and all sins. He sacrificed himself for the sake of all those that he loves. And the scripture says that he loves the whole world. What does the Lamb of God do? We're going to keep saying it in this sermon. He takes away the sin of the world. He died, yes, but unlike any animal sacrifice, he was resurrected in the power of the Holy Spirit, never to die again. And as John the Baptist said, he baptizes us now with that same Holy Spirit, that same breath of life, and his life is eternal. And so that means you and I can be filled to overflowing with the very life of Jesus forever. All the benefits of his shed blood are conveyed to us by the Spirit. So we receive that only life, the only life that can cure sin, the only life that can save our souls, the only life that renews our bodies. 
is freely given, is freely poured out. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Thanks be to God. But what does this mean for us on the day-to-day? Well, it means everything for us, sisters and brothers. It means everything for us. And so um, I feel like right now that I could keep preaching like a long time, uh, but I want to direct our attention now as we close to one aspect of this, one aspect of this from the 1 Corinthians passage. Uh, St. Paul uh, writes in his letter to the church at Corinth to those sanctified, those made holy, those cleaned, those washed, those infused with this lifeblood, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. It's just that turn of phrase. Those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we respond to the call of Christ to be saints together? How do we respond to the call of Christ to be saints together? We call upon the name of the Lord. Okay, what does that mean and how does that relate to what we've said so far? It means that even as we confess honestly our divisions, which we have, our differences, which we have, our sins, We recognize together, we honor together, we proclaim together a Lord who is also the Lamb. A Lord who has given his blood and it is more than sufficient to deal with those things. A Lord who died for all that all might be saved. So if Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, how can we remain angry towards someone for whom Christ also died. How can relational rifts persist when we follow our Lord in the way of the Lamb, which is offering ourselves in service without exemption, without exception to one another? I mean, how can the world, and how can the world around us deny the power of Christ when they see our love for Christ in one another, even in all those differences and divisions and sins? St. John Chrysostom, I'm going to go back to him, love him. Uh, He says the church ought to be united because it belongs to God. It does not exist only in Corinth, but all over the world. And it is one for the church's name, Ecclesia, means assembly. The bringing together. It's not a name of separation, St. John says, but a name of unity in Concord. So if Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, then Christ and Christ alone is the unifying factor for his people. In other words, since all stand in need of a Savior, all that receive Christ have Christ in common. And that is enough. And if Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, then it can only be the resurrected Christ that blesses and transforms cultures, that makes social classes obsolete, that puts an end to all the political posturing that I'm sure we are all sick and tired of in this room. It can only be 
he himself that is both the source and summit of all doctrine and theological teaching. And so it's pursuing all these things, which are, you know, good things in and of themselves, but it's pursuing all these things in an attempt to find unity without believing and receiving Christ alone as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world that leaves us in our sins. And so even if pursuing some of those goals are good things, like, um, you know, we want, uh, we want to bless, we want to transform the culture, we love more social equality, we love to all get along in the political realm. We want all of our doctrine to be sound and our ducks in a row. But when we pursue those things apart from the belief and prior commitment to Christ as the one who takes away the sin of the world, we're not going to find unity in those things. In fact, the exact opposite will happen because we're not receiving the life of Christ by believing in him. Uh, that The opposite will happen. Our sins will corrupt beautiful cultures. It will divide, it will drive these deep fissures between classes and elevate, we've seen this, right? It will elevate political opinions to the level of true doctrine. And then what's even worse maybe is our in our sins, we demote true doctrine, the true, the true doctrine of Christ to a, a level of a tribal marker. Since Christ is the prototype or pattern to which we are all destined to be conformed and we all have Christ, the good news, sisters and brothers, is that we actually have a transcendent source of unity now. It doesn't exist apart from him. But in him, we have that. And so um, that unity can only be, especially for those of us that believe in Christ, that unity can only be undermined by those things like culture, class, political opinions, uh, doctrinal positions, secondary doctrinal positions, that kind of stuff, that can only happen if we let them happen. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we actually deny the power of sin to divide when we look to Christ above all. Amen. And we find that we have this best possible news to share with our neighbors. We say, like John the Baptist who's happy to send disciples. Did you notice that how he, you know, he just sent his disciples. They were, they were with him. Now they're with Jesus, you know? He was happy to send them along. Man, when we adopt that kind of posture, don't look at me. Look at Christ. Follow him. We want you to come to our church for sure. But hey, if, if you're following Christ over there, really and truly, God bless you. Follow Christ. That's what I want for you. That's what we want for you. Follow Christ. And that posture, that posture is um, attractive. That posture actually is how the Holy Spirit begins to move people towards Jesus. Right? And so with John, uh, we get to rejoice today to say to one another and to everyone, Behold, look, behold, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Amen. Amen.